Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Hey, everyone. Today on the podcast, I have Matt Lockett and Will Ford, authors of one of the most remarkable books I've ever read. It's called The Dream King, and it tells their personal and shocking story about how they've had to deal with racial reconciliation after a decade of friendship. Those of you who are familiar with the Individual Freedoms Bill that we took up last session, you will not want to miss this podcast. You'll get to see some of the insights that we took into account when we crafted that bill. You're also going to hear us talk about Roe v. Wade, about Matt's dream and how it plays into what's happening right now in the United States Supreme Court. Dreams are going to be a big deal in this podcast. You're going to hear uh, two dreams that these gentlemen had and how it led them on a road to connecting with one another, as well as the work that they're doing currently. I'm going to let Matt and Will introduce themselves today so that you can get familiar with their voices and keep up with who's talking. Hang in there. This one's a little bit longer than usual, but I promise it's worth it. All right, Matt and Will, it's great great to have you guys with us. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. This is great to be here. It's an honor to be with you today, uh, Mr. Speaker. Well, I am so excited about the conversation we're going to have and, and the story uh, that you all are going to tell to us. But before we get started, I, I'd love for each of you, and Will, we'll start with you, uh, to introduce yourself uh, so that our listeners are familiar with who you are and, and, and what your voice sounds like. Okay. This is my voice. This is the real voice of Will Ford III. <laughs> I'm here in Dallas, Texas, married to an amazing woman named Haviland. And we have four amazing children here. And uh, I run around the country with this guy named Matt Lockett. And uh, we want to run an entity together called the Dream Stream Company and uh, been doing work together. He and I have been in ministry, friends together for at least 18 years and uh, love doing life and love uh, doing ministry with Matt Lockett. That's awesome. Matt, I assume you're going to say that you enjoy doing uh, ministry with Will and you enjoy it, but let me introduce yourself. <laughs> do, do I have to say that? <laughs> <laughs> My name is Matt Lockett and uh, I uh, live here in Washington, D.C. I've been here for about 17 years. I'm married. I have four children and one grandchild. So I'm a new papo. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been uh, knowing this guy here for about 18 years. And we've been doing this thing called, thing called Dreamstream Company, uh, which has a real special and unique focus on healing the racial division in America. Uh, well, that well, that's awesome. And since you brought up the the dream stream, obviously that leads into why the two of you are here, which is to talk about your book, uh, the Dream King, and and how to heal you know uh, race race tension in America. Uh, it, it's such a great story, and I I think obviously you know you two the the two of you your story on how you became friends, how you came to each other, is is united in both uh, separate dreams uh, that you all ha had that led you to a particular place at a particular time. So, Will, if we could kind of start with you, and and obviously the Dream King, the name of the book. Tell us about your dream and, and how you you got to meet Matt. Oh, yeah. Um, well, how I got to meet Matt, the best way to understand how I met him is what I was doing before I met Matt. I've been taking around this pot in my family. It's about 200-year-old kettle pot that was passed down from the slaves in my family. Uh, they used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. Uh, they, were, they were owned by a slave master in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who uh, didn't want them to pray because 
you felt like if they prayed or foster hope, if they got hopeful, felt like they would try to run away. So literally they would beat them if they heard them praying on that plantation. But in spite of the danger and because of their love for Jesus, they prayed anyway. So what they would do is they take this kettle pot into the middle of a barn at night, they prayed at night so that no one would see the prayer meeting, but to make sure it wouldn't hurt, they used that carousel kettle pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard. They would turn it upside down on the cabin floor and then prop it up with rocks, about two or three rocks underneath the rim. Then they would prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle, so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So one day freedom comes, there's this young teenage girl decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. And I'm glad she did. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett, who then passed it on to Nora Lockett, who then passed it on to William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I started taking this pot around the country to remind people of Revelation 5 and 8. Revelation 5 and 8 talks about the golden bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And I was just, you know, as I study history, it wasn't just the prayers of godly Christians who were enslaved, but also it was the prayers of white Christian abolitionists and revivalists back then who also beaten and whipped and even lynched too. It was the prayers of that godly remnant of people that prayed into being the great awakenings that changed people's hearts so radically. Slavery had to come to an end. So I was taking that part around the country for years, but uh, then I had this dream with Dr. King in it uh, around 2003, 2004, and uh, had a profound effect upon my life. In the dream, um, Dr. King uh, comes out of this house to get into this vehicle with me and uh, to, to get to his church in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And in the dream, I thought to myself, you know, I need to uh, watch what he's doing. So he comes out of this house and he has this humongous white duffel bag on his shoulder with black handles on it. And then the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. So I thought, man, that bag would make a nice souvenir. You know, I'm thinking I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag would make a nice souvenir, which shows you how like petty I am. Like even in my dreams, I'm kind of shallow like that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but in my dream, I go to try to pick up this baggage. And before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no. Do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial division in our nation. So I woke up from the dream in tears and I shared it with my friend Lou Wingle, who was also in the dream. We both begin to weep, begin to pray, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? And the Lord reminded me, William, it's the white bag with the black handles. That would be the interpretation for your dreams. So in other words, I realized that the black handles represented my ethnicity as an African-American man. And the white baggage represented all my unforgiveness and my resentment issues that I had that I stored up over the years from, from some of the racism I experienced. So I felt like God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. So uh, my friend Luengla asked me to share that dream at the Lincoln Memorial MLK Celebration Day, January 17, 2005. You know, and as I meditate on that, that the whole message, I realized it wasn't just for me. I feel like God is saying to all of us right now, what color is your baggage? <laughs> you know, is it red, yellow, black, white, or brown, or, or whatever? Is it political? Is it ideological? In other words, we need to get rid of our baggage so we can all get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. 
So that was a dream. And those were the circumstances. And um, it was uh, January 17, 2005. I wound up going to a prayer meeting on MLK Celebration Day at the Lincoln Memorial. And that's where I meet my distinguished colleague from Washington, D.C., who I will yield. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, it's, it's an amazing story. I just want to interrupt briefly and, and talk about, you know, in the book, you got a picture. There's a picture of the kettle, which, you know, if you see it, it really does help you visualize, uh, Will, you know, your ancestors, you know, on the ground in what I presume would be some kind of barn or structure, you know, whispering prayers underneath these, this, this kettle as it's, you know, a couple inches off the ground and, and the visual that you paint in the book about how they are praying for their descendants, for you, for people who are going to come after them realizing, Hey, freedom may not come to me, but I'm going to plant the seeds of prayer for a future generation, um, is, is wildly powerful. And of course you have this dream years later uh and uh you talked about you know you know you still have the kettle that was passed down to you and and you have this so you wake up from the dream you have the dream about dr king with the bag do you wake up and you say i know exactly what that means did it did it take you a period of time to sort of kind of dissect the dream to get to it i mean how did how did that work yeah well my process first i'm bawling my eyes out i didn't realize i even was weeping in the middle of the night in the middle of the dream my pillow was soaked with tears i didn't even realize it but I woke up with tears on my face, woke up sobbing. And so I shared it with a good friend, Lou Wingle, because we were actually going to Dr. King's church the next day. Um, his church said that was well, the civil rights movement got started in Dexter, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. We're going to speak there the next day. So it just happened to have this dream then. So he, I shared it with him. We're both gripped by this. And we began to pray. And that's when it dawned on me. It's the white bag with the black candles. Wow. Wow. And I, I had to get rid of some white baggage. Well, and I, and I know the guy that you're talking to that dream about becomes an important link uh, to all this. Uh, so, so Matt, that's going on in Will and Will's life. You've got your own stuff that you're dreaming about, Matt. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, for me, you know, I have to back up exactly one year uh, from where Will left off. It was January 17th. So the same day that Will's talking about, but exactly one year earlier, uh, I had something really tragic happened when I lost my dad unexpectedly. He passed away from a heart attack. And, you know, my dad, uh, in his family, our family history, our family lineage, or our family tree, uh, it, it had been lost. It was a mystery. No one in my dad's family knew where the lockets had come from. And, you know, maybe some of your listeners to the podcast can, can relate because it, it almost seems like the art of genealogy it, it, it kind of is something for an older generation and younger people and maybe don't care as much about it, but I think it might be coming back because of these online tools we have right now. But at that time, during my dad's generation, there was a complete loss of the story. There had been some abandonment in the family. And so uh, by my dad's generation, they couldn't get past his grandfather. And so after I lost my dad, it became really important to me to try to figure out something about my family history. And I think that's just kind of a, a unique longing that we all go through. We kind of want to know, you know, where did we come from? How did we get here? You know, the, the stories that make us. And so I spent the better part of 2004 researching and digging, trying to figure out my family history. And I hit all the same problems that everyone in the family had ever hit. And, uh, now, my dad's family, this was saying something, saying something because he was one of 16 siblings, which is crazy. He's a massive family. And we always joke about it and say they don't make mammals like they used to because uh, it's a huge family. But 
No one in the family had ever figured out where we came from. And so I hit all those same problems. And it was during that kind of a low part, uh, honestly, just a low emotional point in my life that I had a dream. And so Will talked about dreams. You know, maybe some of your people think this is strange, you know, that we're talking about dreams, but we're literally talking about the kind where you go to sleep at night and, you know, you didn't eat late night pizza and, like, you know, that gives, gives all the credit. So I had a dream about how God was going to shift the culture of this nation and how he was going to do it through day and night prayer. And that was something that was really strange and unique to me. I didn't have any foundation or grid for that. Uh, but there was a man in my dream named Lou Engel. And what was strange for me was that I didn't know who that was. I didn't know that was a real guy. And I certainly didn't know what he was doing. And so I uh, found out it's a real man. He's really doing this thing with prayer. And uh, I reached out to him. I actually ended up on the phone with somebody that works for him. And uh, I said, uh, you know, you don't know me, but I had a dream. And, and he asked me what the dream was. And when I told him, he goes, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what we're going to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. We're going to raise up day and night prayer. But then he said this, we're going to do a prayer meeting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day, January 17th, 2005. Maybe you should come to it. Maybe God will have something for you there. And so this was just a weird, you know, weird time in my life. And, you know, you're just trying to put pieces together and figure out where it all leads. And I, I went, I went to this prayer meeting on Martin Luther King Day, 2005, and, and I didn't know why we had to pray outside. And I certainly didn't know why we had to do it for eight hours in January, but it was <laughs> zero degrees that day. I have a lot of memories from that day, and that was one of them. It was very cold. But that evening after the prayer meeting, there was a, a, another follow-up meeting at a nearby church, and the guest speaker was Will Ford. And he brought out this big cast iron kettle, weighs about 80 pounds, you know, and it's, it's, it's huge. But he brought that thing out and he told the story that he's shared with your listeners today. And it's exactly one year to the day since my dad had died. I knew nothing about my family history, but here I was listening to Will talk about this rich spiritual heritage of his family who had prayed for the United States and for the next generation and he shared this little detail that the kettle had been handed down to Harriet Lockett, who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Will Ford Sr., to Will Ford Jr., to Will Ford III. And I was kind of stunned because I literally heard my name called out in this meeting. So I went up and uh, Will and I started comparing notes after that meeting. And actually, he quizzed me that night, <laughs> Mr. Speaker. He just, he's like, He'd never met a locket before. And so he's like, how did your locket spell their name with one T or two? And I said, two. He said, well, our lockets only spelled it with one. Where were your lockets from? And I said, well, my dad was from Kentucky. He grew up on a farm in Kentucky. But he said, well, our lockets were all the way down in Louisiana. But, you know, it just seemed like at the time this amazing coincidence. But it was enough that it connected us. Like we felt really connected that very first time we met. We prayed together that night. We prayed for the nation. And uh, prayed for freedom uh, in this nation to come again to a new generation. And I'm so thankful that our relationship as brothers started in a prayer meeting. And honestly, we never really left that prayer meeting. This is what we've been doing for the last 18 years as we get the privilege of going around the country and uh, sitting down with uh, 
you know, special people who want to pray for the nation. And we lead prayer meetings. We pray for racial healing and pray for the life issue. We pray for mostly revival to come to the nation again. And, and so that's how Will and I met. I love the, uh, I love that it's both a dream. I love that, Lou, you know, Will, you know, wakes up from the dream, reaches out to his friend, Lou Engel has this conversation. You just decided to dream about Lou, Matt, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and who you don't know, you've never met, not even sure he's a real person. Turns out he is a real person. Um, and, and doing this, obviously, uh, God has a divine appointment that is set on, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial for, for you and for Will to be there and to be there together. I also love how you talk in the book, Matt, about, um, this passion that your dad had about his family heritage and genealogy. I remember being a little boy and going to the the Tampa library with my dad and going through the microfilm for genealogy it was super, super important to him. Wow. Um, so I, I get you as a son, you lose your dad and you start thinking about this, you know, where do I come from? You hear Will talking about his heritage, which he he knows a lot about, in fact, has an object, which most people don't, don't have, right? That That has been passed down for so long. That is not just a you know a plate that someone had, but a, a major uh, sp- a piece of his spiritual heritage, in addition to his family heritage, that has got you know prayers over these many years. So, so you guys meet at this prayer meeting, Matt. You, you kind of do a little bit of a crazy thing, if I recall, which is you know you end up uprooting your life, and you were in Colorado, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're uprooting your life in Colorado, moving. Uh, meanwhile, you guys are friends uh, for for an extended period of time. So, tell me about a little bit about that sort of next chapter for you, and why you decided to like you know uproot your life and uproot your job and your family and and move across the country. Yeah, I I this when I look back, this was like a pivot point in my life. You know, of course, I had a, a fairly su- successful career in the marketplace, but because of this encounter in Washington D.C., I actually left behind a, a career and sold most of my belongings. And my family and I became full-time missionaries in Washington, D.C. You're welcome. And so <laughs> we've been in Washington, D.C. for over 17 years now. And what I do uh, on, on Capitol Hill is I lead a prayer ministry there uh, where we have a special focus of praying for government policy, government leaders. And we have a real special focus on praying for the Supreme Court. And uh, yeah, so it's been a, it's been many years and it's been a, an amazing journey, but yeah, this was like a, a pivot point in, uh, in my life where you know, I felt that, that sense where you get a calling of, of moving into not just a new chapter, but a, a new direction. And my life uh, took a pretty radical turn. And honestly, Mr. Speaker, I went to art school. Like I was in the marketplace and I was in uh, uh, marketing and advertising. I slept through government class. I'm sorry. (laughs) But but it was a very strange turn for me to then uh, relocate to Capitol Hill. That's awesome. The, uh, you know, during this period of time, obviously you and Will are, you know, communicating, you're talking. Now, Will, are you guys, are you working together with Matt yet or does that come later? Oh, no. He he asked me to be on the board of his ministry there in D.C. Uh, I was one of the first guys to do that when he took he takes over uh, Lou's ministry there uh, in D.C. Uh, so for 10 years, you know, we're becoming really good friends, especially those last three years of those 10. We got to be pretty, pretty close. Um, Matt's one of my best friends. And that's that's that was, that was being established during that time period. You know, we, we kind of. Kind of the guys who are in the back of the room laughing at all the other stuff <laughs> that's going on. Stuff going on, yeah. 
Yeah, we're not like beavers and butterhead, but we're not far off. You know, you, I mean? you're saying you guys are like the, tr the the ministry troublemakers in class who are in the back yes. there. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> probably that's accurate. Probably, probably yeah. that's, a good, that's a good example. Yeah, you know, God God obviously sets this divine appointment for you. You guys become friends. You're in the ministry together. You know, Will's on your board, Matt, and you know, you would think, you know, gosh, that would be enough of a kind of a story of God connecting two people, clearly doing His work. But he wasn't done uh, writing your story, and, and there's obviously more to it than that. And, and Matt, you talked about you know your research into your family heritage and being inspired by Will and how he knew so much about his family. So tell me where that leads you, Matt. Yeah, you know, it was very inspiring. So think about it. For 10 years, I had been listening to the story of the kettle and the slaves who had prayed. And that that was such a remarkable story to me because just think of the adversity that they survived, that they lived through, that they suffered through, and yet, you know, remained faithful and had the wherewithal to carry that story. They knew that story was going to be important for the future. Well, uh, after about 10 years, uh, we were at Lou Engel again. Uh, he, he and I were going to visit Appomattox Courthouse, which is a historic site in the state of Virginia. And that's notable because that's the place where Lee surrendered to Grant uh, uh, on April 9th, 1865. And so we went there to visit that site. We actually went in the McLean farmhouse where Lee signed unconditional surrender. But, you know, we went in there and we prayed for revival to come to America. We actually prayed for another unconditional surrender to come only this time that, that we would surrender to God and get out of our, our, our own petty uh, divisions and things. And when we were leaving, we we stepped up to this little bookcase in the visitor center and Lou grabbed uh, the first book off the shelf that caught his eye. And he opens it to this random page and he shows it to me. He asks, what is this? And I look at it and it's an illustration and it's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm, spelled with two T's. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I bought the book and, you know, your listeners can Google it for themselves. What I found out is that the last battle of the American Civil War happened in the front yard of a family named Lockett. And I was stunned by that, but the plot was about to thicken. It was right about that same time that my brother got breakthrough on our family genealogy. And he called me and uh, he said, you know, you're not going to believe this. I got us back to the year 1645. We came in as settlers through the colony of Virginia. And I said, Virginia, have I got a, an amazing story for you? And I started to talk about the end of the Civil War. And he stops me and says, that's not that place by Appomattox Courthouses. And I said, that's exactly where it is. He said, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. Now, this was shocking to me because our family never knew this history. I've been to the site. It has also been preserved. There's a historical marker in the front yard. There's actually a photo of it in the book that we wrote. Uh, on April 6th, 1865, Lee fought the last battle of the Civil War in the front yard of a family named Lockett. It's called the Battle of Lockett's Farm. And uh, I was stunned that not only was it the same name, but it was actually my family. I visited the site. And uh, the, the man who lives there now invited me into the living room and framed and hanging on his living room wall was the Lockett family tree. I had my brother's newfound research and got it out. It was an exact match. This was my family. So this is wild that Will, think about it, Will has this artifact from the past that represents 
uh, his ancestors who had prayed for the nation. And then now I too have this artifact from the nation's past in the form of this homestead, this family uh, property where slavery came to an end in their front yard. It's a pretty remarkable uh, set of uh, events that began to shape up. So, so obviously you see that. I'm assuming that you know that uh, piques your curiosity about you know obviously your family tree and and what happened uh, you know at that farm and the history there, and and once again uh, Lou Engel who's obviously got some spe- special Holy Spirit going on because all this stuff happens when he's around. <laughs> but you know you find this out. Uh, you're doing some more research. You, you you connect some dots between you know your family and and Will's family. Uh, either one of you, both of you, you know, share share with us how you how you connect those dots and, and what you found out. Well, the, you know, it, it all changed in that living room because I was talking with the man looking at the family tree, and he said, you know, some of the lockets left here went to Kentucky, and that was the only part we didn't know because that, that's where my dad grew. Up. And he said, you know, some of the lockets moved to the deep south, somewhere involved in very significant historical events. But then he said this: some of the lockets left here and went to Louisiana. And in some cases, those handwritten census ledgers, uh, there was a clerical error in them, and they accidentally dropped one of the T's and changed the spelling of the last name. And I was stunned. So I I took all this down to Dallas and showed it to Will, and we were kind of stunned. Yeah, kind of stunned. Yeah. So, so Will, tell tell me what that means. Yeah, so he comes to from D.C. to Dallas, lays out his family research. So... Like I said, the kettle in my family was handed down from Harriet Lockett to Nora Lockett. Uh, Harriet Lockett marries a man named Levi Lockett, which is really key. Um, Levi Lockett uh, uh, and Harriet Lockett, they're there in the Lake Providence area. And my oldest known family member was believed to be a man named Isaac Lockett. He's there in Lake Providence, Louisiana. He shows up in the 1870 census. In that census, he's 90 years old. But in that census, he said he was originally from Virginia. Uh, the only lockets in Virginia at that time, you know, slaves always took on the last name people who owned them. Um, so he either was wheeled down to um, Louisiana or was traveling with another, you know, slave owner who was a locket to Louisiana. But when we look at where he was originally from in Virginia, the only lockets in Virginia that owned slaves was Matt's family. So that led to another year and a half of research to bring some clarity. And so what we realized through the empirical evidence that we have, that it was my friend, Matt Lockett's family, who owned our family, where the kettle pot came from. I, I just want to, I want to let that kind of hang, hang for a second. I, uh, cause this is the, this is the part in the book. I just want to be clear what we just heard. You know, you, you get to this point a year and a half after you sort of initially discover this, that mm-hmm. you come to the realization that Matt, Matt's family, the Lockets, mm-hmm. one T and two, uh, owned your family. Yeah. And when your family was praying under the kettle for prayers of future generations, the owners they were worried about had the last name Lockett. Lockett. I can't speak for other people who've read the book. This is the part of the time where I, I had to put the book down mm. for a couple of hours. Um, because I'm, I'm trying to put myself, not knowing you, you guys now, I've got to meet you now, but but at the time I'm trying to put myself in the shoes hmm. and say to myself, if I just found out that I, my family owned my best friend's family, that 
uh, we have talked about his heritage that is where you spiritually feel bonded about about prayer about hearing ra- healing racial division this has got to hit you guys like a ton of bricks will will tell me you you come to the, you find this out yeah um h- h- what are you feeling well at first um i'm blown away because you know i've been in the ministry of one reconciliation into the prayer ministry up to that time for at least 15 years uh, on a national level. And so I've been working through a lot of this. So like any person who loves to pray, don't you love to see when God connects some dots? And so first we're geeking out, you know, I'm geeking out on the fact that, oh my God, Matt, your family, oh my family. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial, led by dreams, meet each other first time as a we're freaking out what a trip i got this kettle pot you got this house with general lee fought his last battle what a trip but then after about four months mr speaker i have to be honest the sizzle wore off Mm. and i was like hold up your people used to own my people what about the stories that we have of a slave being beat to death so finally i had a face connected to Mm. some of the painful stories of my family but connected to the face of somebody that i loved so I had a yeah. paradox going on, right? Matt wasn't there. I wasn't there, you know, and people say, yeah, get over it. But for the first time, I had a face connected to some of those painful stories. And I'm trying to forget how my friend's family was ever my family's enemy. But then I realized that's why God gave me the dream of getting rid of my baggage. A year after I have the dream, maybe less than, than a year, I, I meet Matt. Why? Because one, the Lord was orchestrating something, but then two, he gives us this amazing gift uh, to uh, help us through the process. It's called friendship. We had 10 years of friendship before we knew the rest of the story. So we understood each other's hearts, we understood where we were coming from. And so, um, so what did I do? I went to a deeper place of forgiveness. You know, I was surprised that I actually had any anger rise up it could have been maybe what I was feeling around the country or maybe it was my own, maybe it was both of those things. But what I did was I did the dream. I went to a deeper place of forgiveness. My brother, my sisters, I four of the siblings with me. We all went to a deeper place of forgiveness and it brought such great healing for our family. And, and we're so glad we did. Wow. It's, it's a, it's an amazing story. And it's uh, the dream in particular, Will, about the baggage, right? I mean, talk about God saying, Hey, I'm going to give you this dream. And by the way, I'm going to add a couple hundred pounds of that baggage <laughs> before it's, before I get you to get there where I need you to be. And it's, uh, it's yeah. pretty amazing. You know, Matt, you're obviously on the other side of this where, you know, you've done the genealogy research. You brought it to your, your, your friend of, of 10 years. Uh, what are, what are you thinking and feeling when you're, when you're talking to him about this? I mean, what's the, what's going on in your mind at this time? Well, it was hard because for 10 years, I've been listening to the story of the kettle. I loved it. I was inspired by it. And then all of a sudden I found out, oh my God, I'm connected specifically to that story. And I was connected to the worst parts of that story. I was connected to that of the slave owner. And so honestly, it was was hard to grapple with because I felt personally like I was being confronted with historic wrongs, historic sin, if I could put it that way, and I couldn't look away from it. And I think this is probably what uh, troubles the nation a lot right now is we do have historic sin that lingers to this day. Uh, and the, the urge is just to want to say, get over it. You weren't there. I wasn't there. And yet for me, I was being confronted with it because this historic pain 
had a face and a name, and it was the face of somebody that I loved as a brother. And so I couldn't look away from it. And so, you know, what you, I think what you feel in the nation, I'm kind of telling you how I dealt with it, but also what I feel like is happening. It's a picture for what's happening in the whole nation is when we're confronted with things like historic wrongs, the urge is to want to push away and distance ourselves from it. But what was happening with Will and I is God revealed it in the context of relationship. And so instead of pushing away, we actually drew closer together. And so it was painful, honestly. Um, but I had to go to a, a whole new place of uh, not just having to take responsibility, but wanting to take responsibility. And that was the heart change for me because I want what's best for Will. I want uh, all that God has for him. I want what's best for him and his family and his children. And so suddenly my urge uh, to, to take responsibility, that's something I wanted to do because I want what's best for him. Yeah. So, so talk to me, you guys, obviously you, you come from this friendship, this story now that has united you and you have this, this kind of joint ministry where you talk about healing racial division in America, which I think is, you know, extremely relevant to the times that we're living in and a whole host of issues. But tell us about how you have used this divine appointment that God had set for the two of you to, to meet and be together and understand the history that connects you to heal those racial divisions. What does that look like from your perspective on a macro scale? On a macro scale, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk and uh, just, to, just to throw it out there, because a lot of talk about it, about critical race theory. And, and, and how problematic it, it has become. Uh, you think about, well, I used to you know, be a, a professor at a Bible school and I taught ethics. And so I'll, I kind of put critical race theory in this category of one or two different types of uh, ways you talk about ethics. One is descriptive ethics. Descriptive ethics is where a sociologist or he'll come along and look at a neighborhood or look at a community or a nation. And he's describing the, the moral ways of reasoning of a people, and that's all he's doing, just explaining what has happened. But then you have prescriptive ethics, prescriptive ethics, which is like a normative ethic where somebody comes along and says, you know what, this is the desired behavior that we want. So to prescribe that behavior, let's put up a stop sign here. Let's put up a, a red light or whatever. Let's put up a law to bring about that desired behavior. That's a prescriptive ethic. And I think that's what happened along the way with the uh, critical race theory. It was in this classroom for PhD level students at a Harvard, <laughs> Harvard Law, but you know, Professor Derek Bell as a descriptive ethic to describe what had happened with racism in our nation and the policies and the institutions. But somewhere along the way, somebody took it to an extreme and made it a prescriptive ethic and said, this is how we're gonna solve things. And they came up with these you know, uh, presuppositions that nobody really agrees with it. All white people are perpetual racists. All black people are perpetual victims. And that's simply not true. And so looking at this, I, well, some will say, you know, we need to have this understanding of a critical race theory. I, I think it's critical that we understand grace theory. I think we need to understand the healing hand of God in the midst of all these things. And there has to be a way where we show the good, the bad, and the ugly, but show the redemptive things that have happened. Yeah, there were people that used that Bible, true enough, to keep people in slavery. But there were another group of people that used that same Bible to set a whole nation free. So I think that's what we're bringing is uh, the, the ethic, this biblical ethic, where we talk about 
everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, just like the Bible does. It lays out the, the nation's history, but show, shows God's involvement. I believe you can see the healing hand of God in our nation's involvement over and over and over again. I believe our story is a concrete example of how he's doing it right now as well. Wow. I, I love that. And I, I love the idea of lifting people up and inspiring them and not not tearing them apart. Uh, Robert Woodson at the Woodson Center does it some some great great stuff around. Let's lift people up as individuals, give them hope and and have that sort of healing grace you talked about. Matt, uh, you and I met for coffee in DC at uh, Ebenezer's Coffee Shop, which was uh, you know founded by Mark Batterson, who's been on the podcast and National Community Church. And I had talked to you about these issues we were dealing with in the legislature as it relates to you know whether it's critical race theory, how do we treat people like individuals and lift them up and have these conversations around race? And uh, I'm going to steal your line, but I'm going to give you credit for it because it, it really hit me. And it was, we, we always talk about race in a transactional way and, not, and we need to talk about it in a relational way. Um, and that hit me. T- tell me about what you mean by that and how you've seen that play out in your ministry. I will let you steal that line from me as long as your <laughs> listeners know that I stole it from Will. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, you know, really, uh, this is kind of what's happened as we've told this story. Um, it's profound. It, it, it shakes and rocks people's thinking. Um, but it, it, it's provocative because a lot of particularly young people, they, they're trying to address what, uh, the division in the nation, but they want a transaction to take place. And this is why, you know, the discussion can, can go off the rails in many ways about how that transaction has to look. And, and uh, what, what Will and I feel like our, our story is, is it's a picture of a relational solution uh, that, that is, it, it's absolutely necessary. If we try to solve this merely with transactional uh, solutions. I, I don't think we ever actually get to the solution because ne- it's never going to be enough. And the problem is we're not dealing with it at a heart level. And as I said earlier, I think this is the key. Uh, it was the key in turning uh, my thinking and my heart, but I think it's a picture for the whole thing is that I want what's best for him. I'm not playing a game of self-preservation so that I can keep what's mine. And uh, that might, that might be a little offensive to some people when they hear that, but in the context of relationship, I mean, just think about uh, your own family or your, you know, your spouse or, you know, whoever you are friends with, uh, what wouldn't you give for them? And I really think that's the missing element in the race discussion is not so much how do we exact revenge for the mistakes of the past, but how do we actually enter into true justice? There is a difference between justice and revenge. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, not all the time, but in a lot of ways right now, I think uh, we're on a trajectory for revenge rather than the other. I'm just so thankful for the relationship and, and it's what most people want to avoid, unfortunately. Yeah. Sometimes people would rather just have a political conversation than that actually, you know, maybe get to know each other. I, I wouldn't be doing the book justice or the two of you justice if I, Left out when I got to this part of the book, and I and you guys took a turn into an issue that I didn't expect. Um, and and candidly, Matt, I think I've said to you, like, hey, this this would have probably been a very mainstream, main not, I mean, shocking story, but for the mainstream. Um, but you went into an issue that you know half the country disagrees with where you stand on. Um, but both of you decided to talk about 
being pro-life, uh, about Roe v. Wade, about the overturning of, of of Roe v. Wade and what that would mean for for millions of of the unborn children. As as you know, Will, because Matt texts me every couple of days on it. We passed the most aggressive pro-life bill in the history of Florida this past year, and it was signed by Governor DeSantis. And awesome. I know I know you guys are at the forefront of that, you know, nationally and following it in the states. Tell me why you made that such a point to spend time in the book talking about the pro-life movement. Why did it matter, and why did it matter to your story in particular? Well, for me, I feel like with the race issue, eugenics is the pink elephant in the room, right? There's that one thing in the room that everybody just kind of acts like it's not there and is there when it comes to dealing with the race issue. And uh, for those who don't know, haven't done your homework or whatever, just hearing that word for the first time, eugenics is just a sophisticated name for racism used by elitist at the time. Uh, very, um, very strong movement in the 20s and 30s. Uh, but the last eugenic sterilization law actually came off the books in 2006. <laughs> so it was something that was going on for quite some time. But basically, they believed that um, uh, there were certain classes of people, poor people and ethnic, ethnically speaking, black people, poor whites. They felt like poverty was actually inherited in somebody's genes as if it was inherited like eye color. They felt like criminology, you know, crime or whatever was inherited in someone's genes. And so uh, these people felt like the, the best thing to do is to have the people that we want to have more of, which for them was white uh, elites, whatever, to proliferate in having more offspring. And let's do what we can to weed out the people we want to have less of who are poor, who are infirmed, who are black or, or whatever, the ones that they, they, they deem less fit. So that was the understanding. That was the thinking. And it touches it touched immigration. It touched uh, uh, law enforcement. It also touched uh, mass incarceration was actually part of the idea of you, you can't restrict the people who want to have less of through birth control and sterilization. Let's warehouse them uh, through mass incarceration. That was another uh, uh, plan that was part of that. So anyway, that was pushed by a lady named Margaret Sanger back in the day, um, who was friends with Lanthrop Stoddard and other uh, racists and eugenists during that time period and um, was good friends with a man named Madison Grant, who wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which, by the way, that book was Hitler's favorite book to read. It was by his bedside when he died. And it was a book that Margaret Sanger pushed for. So Margaret Sanger came forth with a thing called the Negro Project. She felt like Black people were like human weeds and they needed to be exterminated. She kept her agenda hidden, though, but she pushed this, this, this agenda into uh, places where Poor blacks, especially where they were, where they were more, where they were most. So she started a clinic in Harlem, and um, suffice it to say, her agenda is still going on. She started an organization later on called Planned Parenthood, and they're still carrying out that agenda. More than seventy percent of her clinics are still in minority communities uh, because there's this population control agenda through the eugenics movement. That that same kind of mindset is still around with people today. So that's why this. This part of it is really, really key to me because the deal is this, with the abortion agenda that's going through Planned Parenthood right now, especially coming after African-Americans, like in, in New York City alone, in 2014, the birth rate was lower than the abortion rate in the Black community in, in New York at that time period. And then, then they stopped keeping up with the data because they, they didn't want more of this to be exposed. But the, the, the deal is this, when the people that you can't see Talking about the child in the womb, when the people that you cannot see can become optional, 
it's inevitable that other people that we can see can also be dehumanized and marginalized even to the place of elimination. So some people say Black Lives Matter. I, I understand the emphasis. I can't get with the entity, but I understand the emphasis. Some people say All Lives Matter. I totally understand what they're trying to convey, but I believe that God is saying drill down deeper, life matters. Because when the people that you cannot see can become optional, it's inevitable that other people that we can say can also be dehumanized and marginalized even to the place of elimination, like we saw with George Floyd. So God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. The same God who wept over George Floyd and Philando Castile. He's the same God who wept over the nine police officers that were killed two years ago with all the riots. And he's the same God that weeps over 67 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. He weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. Well, that, that gives the listeners a, an insight into the fact that you guys did not mince words at all on the importance of uh, protecting life. And I love the you know drill down, life matters, cover, covers everybody. Matt, uh, we'll, we'll kind of end here, but you, you talked about your ministry has released to the Supreme Court. Now we are now living in a time in America where there's been a unprecedented thing that has happened. There's been a leaked opinion, draft opinion, that if, if it would end up somewhere in that space could leave abortion laws to the states uh, to decide, which would be an overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Tell me how that has, um, how has impacted your ministry. What's going on? This is something that you and Will and, and many others have spent years and decades uh, trying to work towards. What's that look like for you? Well, it's, I'm thankful that you came full circle to this. What I didn't mention earlier, and, and if you're listeners, if we've won your heart at all, uh, and if you're peaked an interest at this whole idea that the dreams would somehow be used by God to lead you and guide you. Here's what I didn't say earlier is that that first dream that led me to the Lincoln Memorial to meet Will, well, what that dream was about was the ending of abortion. In that dream, what I saw was God's desire for abortion to end in America and how he was going to use day and night prayer to do that. So, that's why I left my career. That's why I went to Washington, D.C. over 17 years ago. That's what I've been doing this whole time is praying specifically for the Supreme Court. Now, here's the shocker is that all these years we've prayed, we've had one dream that has driven those prayers uh, in a real clear way. And it was this. Uh, in the dream, we were in a building that was filled with courtrooms. And we were being led from one courtroom to another. And the Lord spoke through this dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. And that's a very serious statement, Mr. Speaker. We've always uh, felt the weight of that statement. In the dream, at the end of this long hall was a huge courtroom. And on the door, it read Appomattox Courthouse. So the way we have processed that dream and the way it has guided our prayers is we know what Appomattox represents. That's the last time God's hand of discipline was on this nation. And it was dramatic. 750,000 lives were lost. It's the bloodiest thing we've ever gone through. Uh, at the end of that war, we all knew what it was about. It was about uh, a nation that failed to end the shedding of the innocent blood of the African. And so in our dream, God was taking that historic language and dropping it into this generation. We've taken that very seriously all these years. You know, I've shared that dream for a long time and I've prayed these prayers and people have rolled their eyes at me. They've acted like I'm crazy because 
It can never change, they would say. And yet this morning, I was standing in front of that Supreme Court praying because we are in a moment in time right now where I believe we have been afforded an opportunity to deal with this in our courts. And maybe you're, you have listeners that are thrilled by that. Maybe you have some that are very much opposed to that thought. All I can say is this, is after all of these years of prayer, I know this is the heart of God. And as offensive as it might be to our own sensibilities, all I could say is that this is the heart of God. And so I'm, I, I make no apologies about these prayers. I make no apologies about talking about these things. Well, I uh, I agree with you completely, and it is uh, it is my hope and my dream as well. And it's also my hope that uh, everybody in America would read the Dream King, um, in, in in part because of the the powerful human interest of of the connection between you and Will. What I think it means for that relational aspect of of how we deal with racial issues in America, and then of course where we ended, which is you know the protection of life and how the two of you gentlemen you know articulate the the, the historical significance of why that happened, but also where, what it means for our country today. All I can do is say thank you uh, to both of you, Matt and Will. Thanks for writing the book. Uh, thanks for the ministry. Thanks for everything that you all are doing in the in the heavy lifting out there. We really appreciate it. And and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mr. Speaker. 